you can imagine you're in this sort of blue void. You're out in oftentimes open ocean. You see this whale and it's motionless. It's just sitting there in, in that position without moving. Wow. And you hear these, these almost otherworldly sounds emanating from this animal. Brian Scarry's kind of a legend around here. He's a photographer who's worked with National Geographic for more than 20 years, doing a lot of our underwater stories. We've sent him out to shoot sharks and sea turtles, even a pirate shipwreck. But many of his most memorable photos involve going nose-to-nose with whales. This sound we're hearing? It's the song of a male humpback. At times, they can sound like a, a creaking door, like something you'd hear in a spooky movie. Other times, it is more melodic. It, it has more of a song quality to it. And the sound is just vibrating inside of you. It's, uh, it's surreal. Brian's always been fascinated by humpback song. But recently, he learned something about these songs that made him think about them very differently. It's like, no way, that, that can't be happening. I started to hear this, this sort of description of it being, you know, the American Idol of the ocean. A humpback song isn't just one single animal's soulful sound. It's part of a pop music phenomenon, the whale world's equivalent of Gundam style or the Macarena. Does it work like humans, like if we hear an addictive song? I mean, I, I would love to think so. You know, they get that earworm, right? Something says, oh, that's the one, and I love it. You know, let's, let's print that and make it a gold record. I'm Vaughn Wallace, and this is Overheard at National Geographic. It's a show where we get to eavesdrop on the wild conversations Nat Geo explorers and scientists are having every day and follow them to the edges of our big, weird, and beautiful world. This week, Humpback Hit Factory. We're going to take a look at a whale song sensation that's sweeping the South Pacific. What you hear might just transform the way you look at animal behavior forever. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. So, what exactly makes a whale song catchy? I knew that to get to the bottom of this, I needed to talk to a whale music mogul, a Simon Cowell of the Sea. I'm Dr. Ellen Garland. I'm at the University of St. Andrews, and I research humpback whale song culture. This humpback whale song phenomenon we're talking about, that's Ellen's specialty. But to help us understand it, Ellen's going to start by giving us some whale song 101. These are extremely acoustic creatures. It's all about sound. All humpback whales use sound to communicate, but it's just the males who do those big song performances that Brian Scarry was describing. Researchers think they're a mating thing, like a sexual display. 
But how these sexy whale songs actually function is still a bit of a mystery. We're not really sure if the song is directed at females trying to attract them in, saying, I'm big, I'm strong, please come and mate with me, or whether they're singing to other males saying, that, you know, I'm big, I'm strong, and I'm going to outcompete you. Whatever's going on here, it's super important to these whales. And it's a lot more complex and interesting than your typical animal mating call. The songs themselves are complex, too. In fact, your average whale top 40 tune breaks down a lot like a human one. You start with a basic set of units. So for humans, that would be pitches and notes and rests. For humpbacks, it's... Moan. Groan. Whoop. Bark. And then a few units are arranged in a sequence, uh, which makes a phrase. Phrases get repeated and arranged to make themes. Then you stick a few themes together, and you've got yourself a humpback whale song. It's kind of like how a human pop song has a first verse and then a second verse, and then a chorus that we'll probably hear a couple times. Maybe there's a dance break. Then put that song on repeat. And then the song is sung over and over and over again for many hours by an individual male. Another fascinating thing to know here is that humpbacks are big-time conformists when it comes to their musical tastes. In fact, if you're listening in on a male singing, there's a 99% chance he's singing basically the same song that you'd hear from every other male in that population. But that doesn't mean that they're stuck singing the same thing forever. As uh, time goes on, the songs evolve, so small changes occur in the song. So units can be substituted or deleted or added, and the same for themes. But all males will make these same changes to their song. We could then trace it evolving in nice little steps as one really nice song lineage. Take this little chunk of song recorded back in 2002. In this theme, we've got a bellows. That's that sound. And then three croaks. But over the next several years, the whales keep making these tiny, tinkery little changes, and the theme slowly morphs. So by the time we hit the year 2008, that bellows has changed into a long growl with this little bird trill at the end. And the three croaks? split off into these little purr barks. This is the way whale songs normally evolve, through these small evolutionary steps that happen very slowly. But there's one particular corner of the South Pacific, down around where Ellen works, where things get really funky. Happens every couple of years. Ellen will have been tracking a song so sometimes we have these longer songs, can be a little nicely melodic, and you sort of see nice evolution of song through time. And then suddenly they throw that straight out the window. All of these males rapidly and synchronously abandon their current song and they learn this brand new song type and it has no similarity to the previous song arrangement. Suddenly you've got shorter themes um, and some really annoying ascending sounds which do not sound very nice to listen to. 
Ellen and her colleagues call these rapid shifts song revolutions. I mean, it's such a clear change, and you can hear it. When, when you hear a new song type come in, you're like, wait, what are they doing? To figure out what they're doing, you actually need to zoom out and listen to the songs whales are singing across the whole ocean basin, which is exactly what Ellen did a few years back. She and her colleagues coded a decade's worth of whale song, year by year, in different whale populations stretching from eastern Australia all the way to Tahiti. And as soon as she did that, something leapt out at her. We started to see this amazing pattern emerge. And what we found is that the songs from the east coast of Australia would spread out across the South Pacific in this very stepwise and directional fashion. These waves of song were rippling out from one group of whales to the next, over almost 6,000 miles of ocean. It was like a massive game of humpback whale telephone. It's this amazing network, this social learning of the song type, which is then culturally transmitted to another population. And there is no other animal we've discovered so far in the animal kingdom that does these sorts of population-wide cultural changes at this rapid pace, except for humans. That's right. To Ellen, the way these humpback whale songs take the ocean by storm looks awfully familiar. It's like the spread of a fashion trend, or a diet fad, or a new internet meme. Or, you know, pop song changes, which is why you might have heard about, you know, whale pop idols. So that still leaves a really big question, though. Who exactly are these edgy whale indie artists coming up with these new songs? And why is it one region where all this music innovation is happening? Yeah, trying to understand who's innovating and who's making these changes is is challenging. But we do have little snippets of that puzzle. One of those puzzle pieces might have to do with the geography of the South Pacific. Most of the song revolutions have come from West Australia. So if we've got a population of whales singing off the west coast of Australia and a population singing off the east coast, of course, there's an entire continent in the way between those two, and they can't hear each other. So the uh, ones off West Australia, their song is happily evolving on its own, and the ones off East Australia, that's happily evolving. Until the whales make contact. Every couple years, a few males from the east coast crew might bump into some west coasters. Maybe because their feeding grounds or their migratory routes overlap a bit that year. And all of a sudden, the water around these east coasters is filled with this really strange and intriguing new groove. And it seems that the song from the West Australian population is taken up by the East Australian population because it's novel. Just like in human music, big moments in humpback song history are more likely to happen when isolated musical traditions collide. Think of the Beatles. You remember their early stuff. The first part of the 60s, where it's all kind of poppy, sugary rock and roll. Then, in 1965, someone hands George Harrison a record of Ravi Shankar's sitar music. And Shankar blows Harrison's mind with this whole new Indian musical universe. That one meeting helped transform popular music. Ellen thinks that same kind of cultural cross-pollination might be driving humpback song waves. So they really liked novelty, and we think that this is driving it, trying to be novel if you're trying to, of course, you know, display to the ladies. It's possible that new whale songs are catchy for the same reason new human songs are. They're surprising and they're cool. But hold up. There's a word we've been throwing around a lot here that we need to unpack. Culture is quite a buzzword at the moment, and it has been for... A little bit. Let's stop for a second and think about this word, culture. 
because it's a powerful idea. Culture is the word we use when we talk about things like elaborate tea ceremonies or a symphony or dressing up for Halloween. It's stuff that makes life as a human being incredibly rich and complex and varied and beautiful. Which is why traditionally, when biologists talk about different variations of animal behavior, they tend to use more cautious terms like behavioral ecology. But over the last couple decades, there's been a growing feeling among a number of biologists like Ellen that maybe, as humans, we're not so special. Here's how Ellen defines culture. It's the social learning of information or behaviors from the animals around you, of your species, of your community. Behavior is what we do. Hunting, eating, singing, communicating. Culture is how we do those things. The hunting techniques you use, whether your family eats with chopsticks or a fork, the kind of songs you sing. You don't come by that stuff using instinct alone. You learn it from your family or from your social group or your friends. And actually, that's exactly what these humpbacks are doing. And it's not just humpbacks. Remember photographer Brian Scarry from earlier? I started to talk to researchers that studied sperm whales and beluga whales and orca and all these different species. And this sort of theme of culture began to emerge and how it plays a vital role in, in these animals' lives. Brian's next photo project for National Geographic is actually a giant multi-species feature on whale culture all over the world. When you look at whales through this lens, a lot of their social behaviors suddenly come into focus. For instance, communication. Brian's been talking to researchers in the Caribbean who study the clicking patterns of sperm whales. These patterns are so distinct between different sperm whale groups that researchers actually refer to them as individual dialects. Whales that share the same dialect feed together, take care of each other's calves, and they'll even steer clear of other groups of sperm whales nearby who aren't speaking their same language. And, really importantly, embedded in these different whale cultures is critical information about how to survive in the local environment. Things like feeding strategies. You know, dolphins and whales are some of the only animals on the planet that devise unique feeding strategies depending where in the world they live. Take orcas, the scary geniuses of the ocean. In Norway, there are groups that flash their white underbellies to herd fish into tight little packs and then whack them with their tails. But off the coast of Argentina, the menu and the preparation is different. Orcas there actually force themselves out of the water, deliberately beaching themselves so that they can snatch baby sea lions right off the sand. As far as we know, there is no other place in the world where orca do that. That's the only place, and it's this one family, this one pod that has been passing that technique down generationally, moms teaching calves. I mean, I photographed, you know, a, a mom grabbing a pup, pulling it off the beach, and then, you know, tossing it into the air with her tail. And in the same frame, you can see the little orca dorsal fin sticking out of the water. So she's teaching her calf. When you think about whale behavior this way, something really striking and urgent becomes clear. We've always thought about protecting animals in terms of their numbers. How many rhinos, how many wildebeest, how many orcas. But even in a whale species like orcas, a species that isn't technically classified as endangered as a whole, there are individual populations that are on the verge of total collapse. They're being poisoned by pollutants and 
starving to death because humans are disrupting their natural feeding strategies. And when a group of whales disappears, a whole rich, colorful, and unique way of life disappears with it. If we lose a whale culture, the knowledge and the wisdom that those animals know, it's gone forever. And it would be analogous to losing a human culture. You know, if we lose an Inuit culture in the Arctic, and they're gone forever, and you take a guy like me, you know, an Irish guy from Boston, and stick him up in that place, I'm not going to know how to function. I'm not going to know the things that those ancient cultures knew and the wisdom that they possess. And that'll, that'll never come back. Just because these are deep ocean animals that we only get brief glimpses of doesn't mean that they don't have complex societies. It's pretty incredible to imagine the ocean as this cultural melting pot, a cacophony of languages and traditions and even pop music that we barely glimpse from the surface. I'd like to think that, you know, in the time ahead, so much more richness will be revealed um, through, through science and, and exploration. But, you know, we are at this tipping point where it, it could all vanish and slip through our hands and, and most folks would, would never know that it even existed. Brian's incredible whale photos and learn more about different whale cultures all over the world by checking out the links in our show notes right there in your podcast app. And while you're there in your app, please subscribe to Overheard at National Geographic. Share this episode with your friends, and if you feel like it, give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. We're a brand new show, and that really helps people find us, which is awesome because we're super excited to share the stories we've got lined up for you this season. Make sure to tune in next week. We'll be back with an episode on lying and why it might not be such a bad thing when your kids lie to your face. Overheard at National Geographic is produced by Kristen Clark, Emily Oxenschlager, Brian Gutierrez, Robin Miniter, and Jacob Pinter. Our editor is Casey Miner. Hansdale Sue composed our theme music and engineers our episodes, with additional help from Nick Anderson, Graham Davis, and Devin Ocampo. Roger Payne recorded a lot of these gorgeous whale songs you were hearing back in 1970. And they actually have a really cool backstory. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Special thanks to Pineapple Street Media, Greta Weber, Shane Garrow, and Jim Darling. This podcast is a production of National Geographic Partners. Susan Goldberg is the editor-in-chief of National Geographic Magazine. I'm your host, Vaughn Wallace. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you back here next week. <laughs>